chapter 2 is going to be our text. Uh, you guys remember the, there's a book that came out a few years ago by Brian Stevenson. He was an attorney in Montgomery and he wrote this book called Just Mercy. There was a movie made, came out a couple years ago. Brian Stevenson is a well-educated lawyer, very intelligent, capable lawyer. Uh, instead of using his law degree to work for a corporate law firm, he founded this group in Montgomery, and he defends those who are on death row, people who uh, have often received inadequate counsel in their defense, often come from a poor background. They're on death row, and he's, he's spent his life defending these men. The story is pretty fascinating, and, and I, I, I can't help but think of it in thinking about this, this topic, an, an advocate. Brian Stevenson has gotten some people off of death row, but it's a difficult road for him. The cards are stacked against him. There are all these obstacles on the way when, when somebody goes to death row, and you know the court system is... Has, has, has run its course, and it's a very difficult situation, but he has been able to get an audience before judge. He's able to get some folks off of death row. His education is tremendous. He is extremely capable, and yet, in many cases, he's not successful. I love the fact that you and I... Here, here's what we believe as Christians. This is not the part that I love. I love the part after this. The fact that you and I are Christians, we know this. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We know that you and I, because of what we've done, we deserve. We, we've had the death penalty, as it were, pronounced over us. We know that. But what John is telling us here in 1 John 2, we're going to study this for the next few minutes. But what he's telling us is that we have an advocate who never loses a case. We have an advocate who's pleading our case right now. He is standing beside us. See, this, this same word is translated helper. Uh, it, it, it literally means, if you break the Greek word apart into its constituent parts, it means one who is called alongside of. Translated helper. It's often used of the Holy Spirit. But we have an advocate who pleads our case and he never loses. He never loses. And that's pretty awesome. Let's look at the text together. Uh, a, a, little back, a, little bit, a little bit more background. My little children, he starts off in verse 1, but there's some stuff going on. John's an older man. He's writing to younger people. He's near the end of the first century. All the other apostles have died. And he's got this kind of very pastoral tone in the book of 1 John where he's, you know, it's almost like he, he's calling the church up. And, Look, come up here and sit with me. You know, sit on my... Sit in my lap, you know, i got some things I want to share with you. And so he says, my little children, I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin. So that you may not sin. That's in verse 1. But then he says, but if anyone does sin. Let's pause there just for a minute. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to dwell here because I don't think this is where this text hits home. Hits the closest to home because... This is not something most Christians I know struggle with. I believe, maybe, maybe this is a problem in some places. I think it was a problem in John's day. But most Christians I know, know they sin. They know they're sin. That's not the issue. 
The issue is what they do after that. That's, that's the struggle for most of us. But I want to say this. In John's world, there was a movement in Christianity that was denying sin. It was denying the... It came at it from a couple of different angles, but it basically it did one of two things. It said you were able to attain... This is If you've heard us talk about Gnosticism before, this is related to that movement that would develop in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. But... Uh, they, uh, there, there was one version of it that said you can attain this higher knowledge. You, you kind of like get the secret knowledge. And once you get the secret, you can live without sinning at all. I think John's kind of dealing with that sort of thing. In chapter 1 he said, if you say that you have no sin, you've made God a liar. That's, you, you can't buy into this kind of thing that you're going to be able to live above sin. So that's, that's one way it manifested. There was a second way that it sometimes manifested and that was that this, it, um, it, it taught this duality between spirit and flesh. The flesh is evil, the spirit is good. And so one way of dealing with that, that duality was that what you do in the flesh doesn't actually affect the spirit. And so you can do whatever, this resulted in hedonism basically. Whatever you do in the body, it doesn't matter because your spirit is good and your spirit isn't affected by the flesh. Do you see that? That's, this is a... Thing came out of Greek philosophy. It was infiltrating the church, especially got going in the second century a little bit after John. But I think that's probably some of that's what John's dealing with. You, you're trying to say you don't have any sin? That doesn't work. You're trying to say that your sin doesn't affect your spirit? Uh, that doesn't work. If you say that you don't have sin, then you make, you're making God a liar. And um, now, having said that, to us, what is he saying? Not having been affected by at least that version of Gnosticism, you and I typically don't struggle and say that we don't sin. I, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I think some Christians, maybe they, they deny sin. But for the most part, in, in our assembly right now, I think your struggle is more likely you know that you sin and you may not be taking it seriously or you may be taking it so seriously that you're having a hard time living an abundant, joy-filled life because you don't sense that God has forgiven you of that. So I think that's where John is going with us this morning. If we sin, and, uh, and, and really, biblically speaking, it would be the word sense here. Instead of if, it probably the sense of it would be more like, but since we do sin, I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin. I'm going to circle back to that in a minute. I'm writing this to you so you don't sin, but you're going to sin. So here's where we are. And then he gets to the meat of the text and he says a couple things. I want to spend the bulk of our time right here and let's talk about two words. Two words in the text. We're going to talk about the second one first and the first one second. The two words are the word advocate mentioned here in verse 2. Verse 1 actually. We have an advocate with a father. That's word number 1. We'll talk about it second. And then the second word is in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. That is the foundation for the other one. So let's talk about these two words for a minute. The word propitiation is a word that I dare say nobody in this room has used in the last week. Unless you were reading 1 John 2 or 1 John 4 or another place or two which is Romans 3. Um, we don't talk about this word. It's strictly a religious word. It's not used outside of church really. Uh, but it's an important word. I don't want us to get bogged down in the technicalities here, but I do want you to understand what propitiation means. It's a, 
It's a very theologically rich word. It has a lot of meaning. And there are a couple of things I'd like for us to reflect on with the word propitiation. One is this. It has this background in the Old Testament Day of Atonement. We've studied this before in the past. Leviticus 16 is an Old Testament text that deals with the Day of Atonement. This is one day a year the Jewish people would have this Day of Atonement. It was a day of mourning. It was a, a day of fasting. It wasn't a day of celebration like uh, Pentecost was a day of celebration. Atonement was a day of mourning and crying and weeping and, and uh, asking God for forgiveness. It was, a, it was a sad kind of day. But what would happen on that day was the, the high priest... You may remember some of the elements of this. He would put his hands over the head of a goat and he would proclaim the sins of all the people, confess the sins of the nation. And then the goat would be released into the wilderness, symbolically carrying the sins away. That's where the idea of scapegoat came from. And then he would take another animal and he would kill the animal and take the blood inside the temple or the tabernacle. And, and it was supposed to, here's the idea, it was supposed to atone for sin. Now embedded in this idea is, is an idea of covering. That's what atonement meant, a covering over. All right? So that's, that's, that's one aspect. Here's a second aspect of propitiation, and it is the idea of wrath or anger in the divine sense. <clears throat> this is causing people problems today. It's causing some Christians problems today because we don't like to think of God as being a uh, a God of anger, like he loses his cool, flies off the handle and punishes people like you and I might do sometimes. We might say things we didn't mean to say just because we're angry or we might even punish our children out of anger at times instead of acting in ways that we should. And we think of that kind of anger and we think, well, God can't be like me. And that's, he can't be that kind of God. The problem is taking our experience of anger and, and attributing that to God. That's, that's part of the issue. The Bible does talk about the wrath of God, however. It's not a sinful wrath. It's not a losing his cool wrath. It's not flying off the handle, doing things out of anger that he wouldn't have done otherwise. It's not that at all. But it, what it is, I think this is the best way of describing it, it is the perfect holiness of God, sinlessness of God, perfect in every respect, perfectly holy. When that kind of perfection comes in the vicinity of unholiness, God responds to that unholiness, that sin, that rebellion with punishment. That is God's nature. He is perfectly holy. And when his holiness comes into contact with unholiness, God's divine wrath manifests in punishment. That's the best I can do with it. I think that's, I think that's what this idea is. I don't ever want to attribute this kind of sinful wrath to God like mine and yours. Not that. But rather this judicial, this, um, it's like the, the anger of the court, so to speak. The anger of the judge. Now the judge isn't personally angry, but the judge must pronounce judgment on that which violates the dictates of the court. I think that's the idea in this anger thing. All right, so... Still with me about this? You've got two ideas. You've got a covering, right? You've got a covering over atonement. You've got anger. In some sense, God's divine anger is being placated. So here's what happened at the cross. When Jesus was dying, 
And I know we've talked about this a little bit in, in classes recently. But man, this is at the crux. This is at the core of our faith. When Jesus was dying on the cross, in his perfection, he had no sin. In his perfection, he became as if he were imperfect. The sinless became as if he were a sinner. The holy became as if he were unholy. And he cried out. Remember the darkness fell upon the land. The earthquake, the earth itself began to quake beneath his feet. And Jesus cried out in the darkness, My God, my God, why have you, what? Forsaken me. The holiness of God must respond to the unholiness of humanity with punishment, with separation, with forsaking. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Jesus was taking on himself the divine wrath of God. He was bearing that in himself. I don't pretend to understand the implications of that. I don't think you and I, you and I in our limitations can really grasp that. So we kind of just kind of dance around the edges here and try to get a glimpse into what's going on. And the Bible gives us these hints. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God being poured out on Jesus. He's, this is the 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, that his righteousness might become ours and our sin might become his. It's this beautiful exchange in the holiness and the love of God where God declares us sinless and Jesus takes upon himself the punishment that our sins deserve. I mean, this is, this is the gospel in, it, in its essence, right? So the anger of God poured out on Jesus himself. And what results is a covering. Our sins are covered up. And our relationship to God is restored. We come back to the Father and we're not at odds with him anymore. That's what propitiation is. Right? It's just a very important part of, of Christianity. And so... That's the, that's the second word talked about first. He is the propitiation. All right, so, so that having been, you know, that's the foundation here. Jesus, because of that, because of that act on the cross, he now stands before God as our advocate. And so when he died on the cross, of course, bearing that in himself, uh, he... Uh, he died, it is finished, my work is done. He took his last breath, laid in the tomb Friday afternoon. He lay there Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night. Sunday morning, of course, the resurrection. Jesus was resurrected. He ascended 40 days later. He was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And there he stands. Now, because of the act of propitiation, he stands as our advocate. You and I have no voice. We have no case in and of ourselves. Again, I know uh, this, this season we're in with this, uh, as we continue this study of the one word devotional book that if you're visiting with us, we're reading this book and it has a different word for each week. And, and the word last week was justification. The word this week is propitiation. There's some, some overlap here. But maybe that's good because we need, we need to rehearse this. We need this awareness again and again. So, 
So what's going on here? Jesus became the propitiation, and now he stands as the advocate. You and I stand before God or cower before God on our own merits, and we don't have a case. You know, we don't have a case. The judge was right when he said, guilty. The judge was right when the judge said, you deserve the death penalty. And the death penalty has been declared, and the death penalty will be carried out. And we cower there before the judge on our own merits, and we know he's right. The, 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 the verdict is, is, is right. We don't have a case. The, the case didn't go badly somewhere. It's not that we were poorly defended. It's not that they didn't get all the facts right. Hey, here's the deal. The facts are right. We messed up. The death penalty's been declared, and we don't have a case. That's in their own merits, right? And so what happens is Jesus, our advocate, our helper, our one who is called to our side, the one who stands in our place and offers our case before the judge. I mean, there's all sorts of legal kind of stuff going on here, but he pleads our case before the Father. And what he does is, he says, it's right. She's guilty. She's, she's guilty. But here's the thing. I took her punishment. My righteousness I give to her. And as a result, she is innocent. He is no longer guilty. He pleads our case before the Father. See, see, this is how, this is Paul, if you want to, on a more detailed look at this, Paul does this in Romans chapter 3. But the thing is, see, God, what God need, I don't, I don't want to say it like that. Um, what we need is for God's holiness and God's love and God's justice never to be violated, of course, and they will not be. So at the cross, God's holiness was manifested at Jesus Christ as he was punished, but God's love was extended to us in that Jesus did that for us. So because of the propitiation, Jesus stands before God, and he's our advocate, and he says, he says she's innocent. He's, he's innocent. And we are released on his merit. See, that's what John is talking about here. If anyone does sin, if when you do sin, you got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the one who did not sin. He did not make a mistake. And, and he's the propitiation for our sins, not for, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Everybody can have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Everybody can. And so we are declared innocent. And he never loses a case. It was a Marshall Keeble sermon from years ago. Some of you may remember Marshall Keeble who had a, had a sermon by that title. It was some, the, the lawyer who never lost a case. That's, that's what we've got. We've got Jesus pleading our case, and he will not lose. You don't have to worry at judgment if you're in Christ, you see. Now he goes on. Let's talk about, the, let's talk about where this leads. See, what happens is, he says, if you sin, we all do. If you sin, you have an advocate, you have a propitiation. We need that. And so we stand before God guiltless. What a great blessing that is. But what that releases us, what that frees us to do is for us to walk as he walked. This is not a 
flippant attitude towards sin. It's not, okay, well, since he's going to plead my case, he's not going to lose the case, then I can just do whatever I want because it doesn't matter. Uh, that option's not, not there at all. Because he says, in verse 1 and verse 6, the bookends of our paragraph here, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't, don't sin. Don't do it. But you're gonna. And when you do, you've got an advocate, you've got a propitiation. Then he comes back and he says, in verse 3, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. There's this trajectory in the Christian's life toward obedience. You say you know him and you don't keep his commandments, you're lying. The truth is not in you. But if you keep his word, verse 5, in him, in you, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see, John is wanting us to know we're going to sin. We have an advocate with the Father who's pleading our case. But what that does is instead of causing us to say, you know, sin doesn't matter, it causes us to say, oh man, that is the length to which my Lord and Savior went for my sin. How can I not walk in His path? How can I, how can I take sin lightly? How can I, how can I just develop a, a callousness toward, toward sin when He became the propitiation for me? You know, It's that kind of, we, we obey the commandments. We walk in His path. We do what He wants us to do. We fall down, yes, we fall down frequently perhaps, but we've got this attitude that says, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to try again and I'm going to keep going. You know the difference between a person, a Christian, a, a follower of Jesus Christ who ends up not being saved at the end? It's not really that one is a quote-unquote better Christian, maybe one who sins worse or sins less or whatever. That's not the difference. The difference is the Christian, the follower of Christ, never quits. I believe that God will allow us, if we are so obstinate and so rebellious, God will, it grieves Him, but He will allow us to walk away from Him. He will allow us, if we, he, he makes it hard, he'll, he'll give us every motivation, but if we, in a bullheaded way, we just decide, I'm done with you, God, I'm going to live my life, God will allow us to do that. But the difference, see, the Christian is not living above sin, he's trying. But the difference in the Christian, this Christian we're talking about, and maybe this is you, I hope this is you, is you mess up and you say, Lord, please forgive me. I'm going to try again. You never get to that point where you say, I'm done with you, Lord. See, that's, that's the difference there. This is how we have comfort. It may be, and I think in our churches, week after week, churches across the world, we've got, we've got people sitting in church pews who've given up. And they're just like, sin doesn't matter. I'm just going to do things the way I want to. That person's not in Christ. That person has turned her back, his back, on Jesus, persisting in this kind of stubborn rebellion and has given up on God and given up on salvation. That person has walked away from the Lord, maybe still sitting in a pew, but has walked away from God. But what we want to do is we want to keep trying. The Holy Spirit will empower us. 
with the ability to stay in Christ. He will give us every motivation and every strength and every blessing. And we keep on trying. That's what John is getting ahead. Don't say you haven't sinned. Don't say that sin doesn't affect you. Don't persist in sin. But recognize that when you walk in Christ, it's this attitude of, Lord, I disappoint you. First John 1 talks about this. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So let me ask you something. If you're wondering, now the Christians sometimes wonder this. If you're wondering, am I in Christ or not? Am I, am I saved or not? Let me ask you something. Are you confessing your sins? Are you confessing your sins? Asking God to forgive you? Are you trying to walk in Christ? See, what John is getting at here isn't some sort of perfection, but he is getting to this kind of direction. He's getting to the trajectory. He is saying that if you're in Christ, you're trying to keep the commandments, but you're going to fall, but you keep relying on the advocate, on the propitiation. You keep confessing. You keep repenting. That's what it means to be in Christ. There, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul, as we studied recently from Romans 8.1. If you're not a Christian this morning, see, what we're talking about is, we're talking about living a life that is pleasing to God. It's not, I don't know what you think, if you're not a Christian, I don't know what you think of Christians. Maybe you think, you know, they don't have any problems. We, you know, we, we walk around with maybe this kind of condescending spirit, like, like we don't have any issues. That's not who Christians are. Christians are struggling, but we're forgiven. We're trying imperfectly to keep the commandments of our Creator. We fall down and we mess up, but we get back up. God helps us back up, dusts us off, and, 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 and keeps us going. You know, that's, that's what it means to be a Christian. If you want to be in Christ, to have a relationship with Christ that's characterized by forgiveness in a perpetual, ongoing sense, then Jesus Christ invites you to put your faith and trust in Him to be baptized into him for the forgiveness of all of your sins. And you begin a lifelong journey with the one who's pleading your case all the time before God. And he won't lose the case as long as you stay in him. We invite you today to give your heart to Christ. We invite you, if you need prayers of the church here, to come and let us pray for you. If there's anything we can do, we have an advocate with the Father. What an incredible thing it is. Let's stand and sing.